Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd. Hello and welcome on today's show of Sanseet. We have Nikki Scully. She is an author of Planetary Healing, Chemical, sorry, Chemical Healing, Planetary Healing, and Oblivious. Hello, welcome to the show, Nikki. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's a, by the way, it's alchemical healing. Ah, alchemical healing. Um, a how, guide to spiritual, physical, and transformational medicine. Ooh, wow. Um, tell us about how you got into shaman and Reiki. Well, I got into Reiki back in 1981. And that was my first um, permission to be a healer. I had already been to Egypt. I went to Egypt with the Grateful Dead in 1979. And um, as a result, or 1978, and as a result of the magic of that experience, I was back three or four times in that first year And by the following September, I had committed to becoming a healer, although I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that I couldn't do it in the middle of the Grateful Dead scene. My husband at the time was one of the managers, and it was all-consuming. So I packed up my kids and moved to Oregon, and shortly thereafter learned about Reiki. That was in January of 1981, and Reiki was certainly not a household word at that time. Um, However, it gave me permission to do what I was already discovering, um, being high at those concerts with all that energy, my hands would just light up, and I would find myself... um, you know, actually trying to hold them back because I thought that there was, that you weren't allowed to do that. Only special people could do that. And I wasn't one of those. (laughs) And so Reiki gave me permission and I embraced that authority, uh, eagerly and with, um, great enthusiasm. And, Consequently, all these miracles started happening, and it was very exciting, so I wanted to go deeper into it, and I became friends with Phyllis Furumoto, who was the um, uh, head of the Usui line, and uh, the world master, and she came to me at one point and said, you know, I would really love to have you as a Reiki master, but your uh, life has been filled with experiences that lead me to believe that you 
before you commit to Reiki, because at that time it was a total commitment. There wasn't, you couldn't do anything else. Um, you need to explore shamanism because your life has been filled with shamanic initiations and uh, you need to explore that. And as I, and she and I went to see a seer about it and the seer began to describe the kind of healing work that I would be doing and it wasn't Reiki. And um, within a week after that, a teacher appeared and the signal that she gave was that she was teaching Egyptian Huna and um, the seer had invoked the Ancient of Days from the Huna tradition when she began the reading so that sort of rang the bells and I went to her class and she initiated me into what ultimately transformed into alchemical healing which was written after she died. Um, and with Thoth, who when she gave me the transmissions to teach the advanced work, he became my mentor. And um, as soon as I started paying appropriate respects and attention, he started giving me my own work. And it's out of that work that power animal meditations and planetary healing, spirit medicine for global transformation, and uh, a slew of other books came. Um, the last of which is, most recent of which is Sekhmet, Transformation in the Belly of the Goddess, which was just released this June and is right now the most important as although alchemical healing and planetary healing are important at a classical level there's no time constraints on them the 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 initiations the rites of passage um the ability to self-teach through those books is going to be is timeless. Um, Sekhmet is also timeless, but it's particularly important right now. And do you want me to get into the whys of that at this point, or I would, where? I would, like, yeah, tell us about why it's so important at this moment in time. Okay, Sekhmet is the lioness goddess. She has a lioness head and a human body. Sometimes she comes as a lioness. Um, she and her husband Ptah and their son Nefertun, the lotus born, the fragrance of life, uh, ruled from the north at Memphis. And in the south, Hathor and Sekhmet were often um, I don't know whether to say combined or confused, but they're sort of the flip side of the same coin, whereas Hathor is love and joy and um, sensuality and sexuality. Sekhmet is fierce compassion, and she is the guardian of Ma'at, who is both the concept and the goddess of truth, justice, balance, harmony, 
cosmic law. There is a statue of a blind uh, goddess at the Supreme Court. Or not, she's got her, uh, she wears a blindfold to show that justice is blind. And um, she, when things get out of whack like they are on the planet right now, um, when the balance dissolves and the uh, there's so much greed and, and falseness and uh, disrespect of people to people, people to the planet, people to the creatures of the planet, people to each other. Um, Sekhmet comes in to make things right. Well, in her initial myth, she just slaughtered everybody because she was so enraged when she saw how people treated each other and the planet. And she had to be tricked, or so the myth says, um, in order to stop the carnage. And what actually happened was the brew that Thoth told Ra to have his priests and priestesses make, which was 7,000 uh, vats of barley beer spiked with mandrake and pomegranate to look like blood and various other things so that when she woke from a nap she would lap up the blood and and uh, get so drunk that she couldn't kill anymore but in fact um, that's kind of the patriarchal take on the myth the as I've gotten to know Sekhmet more intimately I'm understanding that the the beer, and remember, beer at that time was a very important stable in the di staple in the diet of the Egyptians because they couldn't drink the water; it wasn't clean, and uh, so they made this this barley beer, and that was their nourishment as well as their liquid. And um, this particular batch included mm, probably some poppies and so perhaps some soma or some kind of uh, psilocybin or DMT-related substances, blue lotus, um, some form of psychedelic that would, instead of make her drunk, shift her from rage to love. And from a place of love, she simply walked away and it had to be cajoled to come back because she's such an important part of the Egyptian pantheon as the healer and as the guardian of Ma'at. So when you do this segment work, which is really quite a commitment, you have to analyze yourself and you have to tie knots in string um, to commemorate those things that you want to transform in yourself, the things that are keeping you from being the very best that you can be and the highest that you can be. And um, in, in doing so, you're creating an offering for Sekhmet. 
And so you tie knots about all the things that you've neglected or all the reactionary ways that you behave and the things that you want to change in yourself. And when you have tied as many knots and of course gratitude for the lessons and prayers for how you want it to be um, then you take that offering to the chapel to Sekhmet Ptah and Nefertum at Karnak where there's a statue of Sekhmet that's been there for 3500 years and it has a tremendous amount of energy people that come with me to Egypt, and I've led more than 60 trips to Egypt, think that at the beginning I ask them why they're coming to Egypt, and they have all sorts of reasons. But once they stand before Sekhmet and received her direct transmission, they know that she called them. And it's the same with this book. If you find yourself with this book, you know that she's called you. Or if you feel drawn because you're hearing about this work, then she might appear in your dreams or you might just know that you have to do this work because, or maybe even though when you make that offering to her at her statue, she doesn't just devour the offering, she devours you and you go through a full-on shamanistic death illumination, um, death dissolution illumination and rebirth process in which by the end of it, after she has gone through and healed every aspect of every knot and every disease or pain or situation in your body, mind, soul, and spirit, then you're reborn as an adult child of this goddess and you are in her and she is in you. And that relationship has become so strong and so intimate that you recognize yourself as part of a large and growing community of warriors for Ma'at. And then it's up to you to find the actions that allow you to fulfill your sacred purpose in uh, utilizing the exponential power of the numbers of community that's building in order to overcome the malaise, the ignorance, the greed, and the fear and rage that is causing this disconnect that's finding us in this perilous place right now on the precipice of annihilation. What is your association with Egypt? Well, as I said, I first went in 1978 with the Grateful Dead. And as soon as I knew we were going, I knew I had to go. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but... There was so much magic and so much synchronicity that I had to return. I was back three weeks later and again and again. And then after a year, I realized I needed to go home and study for 10 years before, well, I needed to go back and study, but it was 10 years before I returned. 
And by then, I had already made relationships with many of Pantheon, so that when I arrived with 17 people on my first tour, they laid out a feast of magic and rites of passage and initiations that were astounding and enchanting. And, you know, I've been back more than 60 times. So, um, leading groups and now of course I'm 74 years old. I'm not traveling. Isn't as easy for me. I've trained really good people over the years to lead the groups and the groups are still going now and doing the work. And the work is different every time because it is, like going to Egyptian mystery school in Egypt. And of course they don't let us know what we're going to be working on till we get there and start doing the work. And it's, uh, it's amazing what happens for people. I mean, it's a, a, a turning point in every person's life, a, piv a pivotal moment as it was for me when I first went with the grateful dead. Um, who is the grateful dead? <laughs> Oh, I love it. A generation that doesn't know who the Grateful Dead is. Okay. The Grateful Dead actually, even including the Beatles, has probably sold more or did up until Jerry died, the leader of the band in, in I think it was 1996, more tickets than any other band in the world. They were the the had the largest following of any road band in, in, in the world. And, um, their followers are called deadheads. There are many movies made about them and about the deadheads. And, um, they were the San Francisco Bay areas leading, um, psychedelic music band and the acid tests. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Mm -hmm. Um, they were the music of the acid tests back in the sixties and they, although they never had a hit record, so to speak, or, I mean, they've had many, many gold records, but, um, they, their stature were, was more as, um, I think the largest audience they ever played to was maybe 600,000. But um, they, we went from a couple of hundred back in the early days to stadium gigs of uh, 80,000. That was the normal. And then Jerry died in 1986, and the remaining members of the band are still playing and still drawing crowds that have four, even five generations of families that go to these concerts and follow this band. But it's, it's not quite the same as it was when Jerry was alive because he was kind of the, the lead shaman and the, their songs were like the Icaros of the current ayahuasca ceremonies, but for a much larger group of people. Does that sound at all familiar to you? 
Um, I'm too young to actually know who they are. So that's what I was asking. But um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned about the, the Pantheon in Egypt. Are they particular gods or explain that to us? Um, the, the word for gods in Egypt is netaru. And a god, god is a netter or a female one, netert. And in um, the Coptic Egyptian, that word would be nature. And in English, it would be nature. And so Egypt is really, the ancient Egyptian religion was a nature religion. That's why they put animal heads on human bodies and vice versa and mixed it all up because they saw God in everything. And so ultimately you couldn't really count the number of gods in the pantheon, but there are certain ones that are better known than others. My teacher's name is Thoth and he is has an ibis head on a man's body. And to the Greeks, he's known as Hermes Trismegistus and the, the thrice great born. But now he's incarnating in a way that he comes into people all over the world who are seekers to become their guides. And once I was introduced to and made relationship with Thoth. The question of who am I, why am I here, and what am I supposed to do had no more meaning because I had a guide who has for the last, uh, well, since the early 80s, um, been the architect of my work. And as long as I pay attention, I, you know, my work is laid out for me, so I don't have to be struggling about what, I, what I'm supposed to be doing. What's being hard for me now that I'm 74 is how to stop. It's like it's easy to get the train going, but it's, the brakes just don't work. <laughs> I'm trying to retire. Um, you mentioned that he's the architect of your work. How does that, come, how does that work for you? Well, interestingly enough, I'm not a seer. I'm not a psychic. I'm, I'm a healer and a really good one, um, but um, for many, many years, people see for me. I teach people how to see, and then they inform me, and those that are really talented become my close friends and allies, like my husband. He and I... Uh, he was the visionary and I was the scribe for the planetary healing spirit medicine for global transformation work. And that book also has a CD that's an amazing shamanic journey and has music that can be used for all, any shamanic journey. Um, but the, he, he, when I introduce people to them, most of the people that I introduce to thought if he's there, supposed to be their guide, he's just going to be there for them. And they can see him and they learn to feel him. They learn his signature so that they can't confuse 
anybody else with him and he's reliable and um, often Anubis have you heard of Anubis I have yes uh, Anubis sometimes comes in his place they're very closely associated the Greeks actually had a Hermanubis a combination being of the two of them but he's a, 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 a very um, he's a guardian and protector and guide and teacher as well and I've written two books for him the uh, shamanic mysteries of Egypt and the Anubis Oracle and there's actually a free you can go online to the Anubis Oracle.com and have a free reading with Anubis um, and um, it's, I guess making relationships with a pantheon like Egypt is just like sitting down and having tea with friends. <laughs> and once you've made those relationships, and certainly if you pass through the belly of Sekhmet, you are part of that family. And it's not really different than any other family. They just don't have bodies, so you see them in a different dimension. Yeah, um, we associate Egypt to hieroglyphs. Um, are you able to read them or not? No, but fortunately, I have a partner who is a scholar and reads them and in fact did the finest um, translation of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It's called Awakening Osiris and her name is Normandy Ellis. And so she's who I defer to when I need the hieroglyphs led and we've probably we did 20 years of mystery school and at least 10 tours to Egypt together and now she's still leading tours to Egypt with my partner Indigo Ron Love um, Mystic school are you, did you get um, did you become a teacher through the mystery schools in Egypt or not I became a teacher through Thoth oh I mean, he's the god of wisdom. He's he's the um, well. the The way it works is you need to be initiated by a peer in a human body that's directed by someone like thought. For example, when I received my master's initiation and was given the lineage of thought. Phyllis Furumoto, the Reiki, world Reiki master, was with me. We were in ceremony together, and she's the one who recognized it. And she said, I've never seen this before, but you're receiving a master's initiation, and it's not Reiki. And her assumption was that because she was a peer, she could recognize it. And she told me I had my own lineage, and I would have to find out what that meant. And then over the years I did, and I trained people to become part of that lineage by teaching my work. And so now there's a network throughout the world that teaches alchemical healing, the Egyptian mysteries, and other aspects of what I do. But they're not Nikki clones. It's a very individual thing. And once they've made a deep enough relationship with thought, then they get their own work. And the idea is that they come back after time and, and share with us what they've learned. 
and we all grow. Um, wow. What is, um, should have asked the question. Um, in, in doing the, the mystery school, um, is, um, what is chemical healing? Alchemical healing is a form of alchemy. We're all alchemists. I mean, if we eat food and that food in our body is translated to muscle or bone or strength or fortitude or waste, that's an alchemical process. Well, alchemical healing is an art form. And when you know the principles, and there's only four of them, so that's pretty easy. It's based on um, your skill, whatever your history is, what you bring to the table as a healer, your relationships with spirit and how you use them as a healer, um, allowing space for divine intervention and that which we're not wired to understand to actually come in and help us, and then gratitude. Those are the four principles upon which alchemical healing is based. And once you know all the tools, which are constantly growing, but at least even just the tools in alchemical healing, the book, um, then it becomes an art form, and you, you know, you it's pretty hard to make a mistake. You use all the elements, you use your allies and totem animals and plant spirits. You don't have to harvest the plants to use them, that you can simply use their intelligence. You work with deities, archangels, whomever shows up. You know, if somebody has a tumor, you might call on a cobra to come and eat it. Um, and if the person feels it and experiences it, their subconscious mind doesn't distinguish between a dream, a vision, imagination, or real-time reality. And so it acts as though it's happening in physical and the physical changes happen. I mean, that's basically how it works. It's a simplistic description, but it's actually a very simple a very deep and rewarding and fulfilling form. It, it sounds like what you just described and shamanism and the soul and energy, they all wrap around each other to be one parcel. Uh, yes, but it's expressed in many forms and many ways. I mean, you know, there's certain aspects of shamanism that, are seen throughout the world in all the cultures where shamanism exists. The problem with America is that it's not respected. It's not substantiated by science because it can't be measured. However, the new science, for example, do you know who Bruce Lipton is? Yes, I do. Okay, he's a good friend of mine and we work together a lot. And when we went to Egypt, he would supply the scientific information to back up the shamanic work we would do. And that way, the people who were there, mostly for him, because he's the famous one, 
um, would have their intellect satisfied. Consequently, they were able to um, move forward um, and have a full experience of whatever the initiation or rite of passage was because they weren't blocked by their intellect. And so what he would tell you is science and magic or science and shamanism are converging. And when we teach together, we call it the convergence of science and shamanism. Wow, that's, that's amazing how the, the mind and the soul of, or the magic is combining, which is cool. Um, uh, in planish uh, healing, is that something similar or different to chemical healing, or is it a broader aspect? Uh, chemical healing has to do with one-on-one, -on -one, primarily. That's what it was meant for. The next level takes you to situational healing, environmental healing, um, DNA repair, uh, intelligent evolution. So it's the next graduation from alchemical healing would be planetary healing. Uh, with what you see in but, the... Sorry, continue. But something like Sekhmet, or the Union of Isis and Thoth, which is about consecrating temples, which we had to do in order to do our mystery school. Those are timeless. Um, but the healing work, the specific healing work, like what you would call Reiki, but this is, you know, uh, this is different from Reiki because when I learned Reiki, Reiki was the intelligent force that you relied upon. In alchemical healing, you have as much responsibility as the energy, and it's up to you to uh, determine how you're going to use it. And so that gives the practitioner as, uh, you know, puts the practitioner on an equal footing with the energy itself. It's a dance between the healer, the person receiving the healing, and spirit or energy. Is that dance also being uh, performed in nature to heal the planet once the person receives that, that stage in their, their abilities? Well, I think the, every aspect of the planet is equally invested in the healing as we are. But we're the ones with the hands. We're the stewards of the planet. So it's up to us to activate those energies in an appropriate way. And if we ignore our responsibilities, then that's just as bad as doing something wrong. Wow. Um, when you went to Egypt, and you, uh, are, are the pyramids like an energy source to the area? Or did you get a chance to uh, explore them? Oh, of course. We get them to ourselves. We have them privately, and we do our initiations in the sarcophagus in the king's chamber. But the pyramids is just the most well-known of the monuments of Egypt. The temples, as you go into southern Egypt, are equally important, and they carry frequencies that 
in their own way are as powerful, although different from the pyramids. I mean, the people that built those monuments knew what they were doing. They invested them with energies that are still speaking today to anyone who walks into those monuments with the ears to hear them. That's a open heart and seeking mind to understand them. Fascinating. So you're you're opening an open book into the temple and it's speaking to you in some way. Absolutely. Fascinating. It just shows you that we're all energy and even though the building it still has energy and it whispers through us. Um uh why do you think the the temples that are not well known not well known comparing to the pyramids? Because everybody makes such a big deal about the pyramids and the pyramids are in Cairo. You know, to get to the temples, you have to travel. You have to go to Luxor and you have to go to Aswan and you have to go to Edfu and Esna. And uh whereas the pyramids are right outside of Cairo. Um, and the Sphinx is the guardian of the pyramids. Oh, wow. Um, so when you do the um, initiations, is the energy quite amazing to be in uh, where you do it? Well, I can, if you want, I'll take you on a journey of initiation right now. Okay. All right. Do do we have time? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, I'm going to teach you a heart breath, and that's how you're going to connect up. And then we'll travel to Egypt and we'll visit Sekhmet. Um, yeah. See what happens. Before we begin, do you mind the listeners listening to this? Well, it's for the listeners. Okay. Perfect. Just. Double checking. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, for, the, for everybody, I just suggest that if you're going to participate, if you're driving a car while you're listening to the podcast, please pull over. Okay, I need to get a sip of water. One second. That's okay. Sorry for that. It's okay. Um, okay, so we start with the heart breath. And because of timing, I'm going to teach you on a fast track. Okay. I'm going to explain it to you first so that you can just follow me in it. The idea is to use your breath like bellows and to inhale from the heart of the earth all the elements, medicines of the earth, such as the gemstones and the um, roots and plants and minerals of the earth, at the same time as you're inhaling by drawing down from the sky, from the heart of the cosmos, the intelligence of the celestial bodies and beings 
and the field of consciousness in which our earth is suspended, okay? And everything is threaded through the heart. So we start at the heart. So I'll ask you to ground and center yourselves. This is for you and your audience. Ground and center and focus on your heart. Find the eternal flame that lives in the sanctuary of your heart center. And as you bring it into focus, feed it with love. Love is the fuel. And as you pour love upon your flame, it gets brighter and more intense. Now begin to breathe simultaneously, inhaling from the heart of the earth and the heart of the cosmos simultaneously, pulling the energy up through your lower body to your heart and down through your crown to your heart. And when those energies meet at your heart flame, they mingle with the love that you continuously pouring onto your heart flame. And when you exhale, it goes out in every direction from your heart, awakening every cell and molecule in your body. Are you with me, Erin? Yes. Okay. Now do it again. Inhale from earth and sky. Mix it with your love. Exhale. Inhale from earth and sky. Mix it with the love in your heart flame. And exhale in every direction. Now this time, as you inhale from earth and sky, mix it with your love in every direction. Mix it with your love and your heart flame. When you exhale in every direction, it radiates so far that it touches the person nearest you in the podcast. And then it goes and around the world to touch every person throughout time that's listening to this podcast. And that creates a, a communal heart fire so big that it makes a light that attracts all the beings from other spaces and dimensions and galaxies in the universe, including the heads, the, the deities of all pantheons, the archangels, ancestors, galactic councils, and they, all those that are invested in the healing of our planet that want to support us, come and circle around that glow of light. And now each one of you that's listening, invite your own allies, those of your ancestors or spirit beings that you work with or would like to work with that you wish to witness this rite of passage as we go to visit Sekhmet and acknowledge them as they come in See them if you can, feel them, imagine them, 
or simply know that this huge circle of light exists surrounded by all these beings from beyond. They're the above and we're the ground, we're the below. As above, so below. We complete the circle. And now in the very center of that glowing light that is our combined heart fires, you'll see a little dot. And as you continue to heart breathe toward it, uh, offer your breath toward it, it grows and it grows until you can see that it's an eye and it's the right eye of Ra or Sekhmet who is the feminine face of Ra. And you see this eye, looks like an eye of Horus or an eye of Ra and you, as it gets large enough, you feel yourself drawn toward the pupil. And then when you pass through the pupil, you'll find yourself in Egypt. Standing under a sycamore tree in front of a, a sycamore fig tree in front of a small chapel that's dedicated to Ptah, Sekhmet, and their son Nefertun. Kind of gather yourself up for a moment as things clarify and consider that you're about to meet this goddess Sekhmet. The statue that stands within this temple is about eight feet tall. It's black granite. It's a woman's body with a lioness head. She wears a sun disk on her head and a cobra at the dais. She holds the ankh in her right hand and a papyrus staff in her left. And now we're going to walk through the colonnade and stop at the courtyard. There's a small courtyard inside with a wooden door that you're facing and a big slab of stone that we use as an altar. You just stand in front of the stone and collect yourself. And a priest or priestess or guardian of the temple recognizes you, walks to the door, pushes it open inside, and then opens the iron gate to the right and invites you in. And you enter into her chapel and turn left and walk straight up to this chapel and make sure you're standing upright and open your heart and offer her a heart breath and look at her eyes. And she may reach out, you might feel a hand or a paw on your chest. And it's like an electric shock. And the energy enters you and moves through your circulatory system as you feel her power and her courage. The word Sekhmet means power or mighty one. And her energy, which is called Sekhem, moves through your body and it awakens every cell and molecule 
to remember that she already lives in you. And so as she sends the energy into you, it awakens that memory. And now focus on her eyes and they come alive and she sends liquid sunshine into your eyes and with it comes a transmission of a message from her to you. And just receive the energy and courage coming from her hand or paw and the message that's coming through the transmission she's giving you from her eyes. Since this is simply an introduction, we don't have to take a lot of time. You know the way you can come back, but thank you. Thank her for introducing herself to you at this time. And if you wish, you can make arrangements now to see her again later. And when you know that you're complete for the moment, back out of, back up to the gate, and then turn and leave her temple. And each step as you walk back through the colonnade brings you back into your body wherever you're listening to this podcast. Take time to ground and center and be sure that you have somewhere to write at least a, a few things that will trigger your mind so that you don't forget and it doesn't pass away like a dream. And as soon as you get to where you have a journal, write all the details of your experience down. How are you doing, Aaron? <laughs> wow, that's gorgeous. Um, yeah, um, Nikki, uh, where can we find you? Um, shamanicjourneys.com, nikkiscully.com, Facebook, um, I have two Facebook pages, Nikki Scully and Nikki Scully Author, um, yeah. I'm, I'm around. <laughs> I'm um, excellent. Uh, is there a, I just want to say thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing what you got to share. Well, thank you for having me. I, I do also have a, um, uh, a web store called hathorsmirror.com, but you can get to it from, shamanicjourneys.com and from shamanicjourneys.com you can also get to um, certain uh, sites that are dedicated to specific books that I've written that have sample journeys so that there's, there's a lot of free stuff on there and there's planetary healing calls to action and planetary uh, or cancer phone bridges and all kinds of stuff. A lot of articles. Fantastic.
their views. Uh, excellent. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show. And uh, we've just stopped recording there. Okay, wonderful. You're awesome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. I enjoyed our our time together. Yeah, likewise. Um, so what I normally say to people um, when uh, the recording is finished that you get you will receive three emails. Um, one say it's ready. Second will be a download of a file to listen and have in your PC. And the third one is a uh, it's right it's it's live a URL and uh, you can share it to your website, your Facebook, or whatever Great. you want to do with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking to you. I I sure did enjoy talking to you as well. And thank you for that, that little uh, trip. It was fantastic. Go check out the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not surprised. I don't think they've ever played in Ireland. They played <laughs> England. I've been with them in England. It, it's... But, it, so, uh, it's funny. I'm only 26, and I didn't know them. And I was like, "Who are they?" And so, uh, my age, my age shows, my youth shows it. All right. How old are you? 26. Ah, ah, yes. Well, <laughs> it's amazing how many 26-year-olds still follow them. I don't know why, but it's a, it's a, it's a funny band. It just covers all ages. It's uh, and it just keeps going, but I I'm partial to Jerry, so I like the old stuff. <laughs> cool. How did you yourself, Michael Nish? I don't remember. I think I used to write for one of his magazines many many years ago. Okay. But I don't. I just don't remember. I at least advertised. I don't. I just <laughs> remember. <laughs> it's been a long time and a long full life. Yeah. Um... Cool, Nikki. All right. All right. Thank you. And you have a great day, and I'll be in chat with you soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time. Have an awesome day and rock on.